Well, we're continuing on in 2 Samuel. And I want to refresh a little bit where we've been in the last week or so. So in 2 Samuel 5, David was anointed king over Israel. It finally happened. After many years of waiting, David was finally anointed king. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David that he would build David a house. God would establish his throne forever and the throne of his son. In 2 Samuel 8, we get a list of David's military victories and his officials. And you take that all together and we see that David is at the height of his power. There is no one more powerful than David. And he's never had power like this before. And so one question is, what is David going to do with this power now that he has it? And the first thing that we see is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you want to turn to 2 Samuel 9. This is his first use of power that we see. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That's, what's Dave, that's what David's going to do with his power. He wants to know if there's anyone from the house of Saul, not so he can wipe them out, not so that there's no threat from the house of Saul, but so that he can show kindness to him. And the Hebrew word for kindness is hesed. And it comes up four times in chapters 9 and 10. And it means to deal loyally with somebody. David wants to be loyal to the house of Saul. Verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And David said, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. So there is still someone from the house of Saul, and not only from the house of Saul, but from the house of Jonathan, the son of Jonathan, David's closest friend. But what does Ziba say about him? He says he is crippled in his feet. In other words, he's really of little concern. He's not of very much importance. He's no threat. He's nobody. That's probably why David had never heard of him before. He's living in a place called Lodabar, which literally means nothing or no word. So in other words, this son of Jonathan is a nobody from nowhere. Hardly worth David's time in Ziba's opinion. But David doesn't care. Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? You have to understand Mephibosheth's position. He and his son Micah are the last ties to the house of Saul. 
And Mephibosheth has also read the How to Be King playbook. And he knows that when David sends for him, or at least he suspects that when David sends for him, that he very well might be killed. That's why he falls on his face. And that's why David says, do not fear. But David doesn't intend to harm Mephibosheth. Instead, he intends to show him kindness. We see that word again, that hesed word again, loyalty. Remember the last time that David and Jonathan were together, they made a covenant. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. David is making good on his promise by showing Hesed to Mephibosheth. David's going to restore Saul's land to him, and he's going to eat at David's table always. Mephibosheth may not be king, but David is treating him like he is a king. This is David using power wisely and well. And this continues in chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. Now, we don't know the circumstances, but apparently at one time, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, showed kindness to David, showed loyalty to David. And now that Nahash has died, David wants his son to know that he plans to deal loyally with him as well. It's that word hesed again. David shows loyalty to the house of Saul, and he shows loyalty to the king of the Ammonites, Gentiles and former enemies. David's going to show loyalty because Nahash had shown loyalty to him. But this time, the results are different. And David's hesed is is rebuffed, is refused. The new king listens to some bad advice and humiliates some of David's advisors. War breaks out and the Ammonites hire the Syrians to help them fight, but it doesn't do any good because God is with David. That's a brief summary of about 15 verses right there. But God's with David, and so the Ammonites are not going to be able to win against him. The Syrians that they've hired are not going to be much help. Verse 18, and the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. David wins. The Ammonites have lost their hired help. Now all that's left is to finish off the Ammonites the next time the opportunity knocks. And it looks like that's going to be the following spring. So uh, chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So at the end of chapter 10, David went out and fought, and he achieved victory. But now with victory over the Ammonites within reach, he stays behind at Jerusalem, and he doesn't go with the troops to fight. And we've talked before about fall stories in the Bible. Adam and Eve in the garden, Israel and the golden calf, Solomon slide into idolatry, Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit. And what makes them fall stories is that right before they happen, everything is going very well. 
and then you have a fall. Now, if you read the text this week in advance, you know that what's coming next is David's sin with Bathsheba and his cover-up murder of Uriah. And it's a fall story because David is king. There's no one more powerful than he is. The sword of his enemies can't touch him. God is building him a house. He's at the height of his powers. And if Israel is ever going to be what God intended it to be, surely it will become that under this righteous king, David. And then everything changes. Verse 2. It happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. A couple of things to point out here. David seems to be lazy. He's not out fighting with his men. He's not conducting business of any kind, really. He's on his couch in the late afternoon, and then he's wandering on his roof. He seems to be thoroughly checked out. By the way, much later, King Nebuchadnezzar will be walking on the roof of his house, and he'll be struck with madness. David's walking on the roof of his house, and he sees a woman bathing, and he's struck with lust. And the verbs in the story really tell it all. He saw that she was beautiful. He took, he lay with her. And in telling it this way, I think the writer wants us to think of Genesis 3, the first fall story. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam and Eve abused their position as representatives of God in the garden. And David abuses his position as God's king over his people. He took Bathsheba. And we remember the warning that Samuel gave that kings would be takers. And David has become that kind of king. It's an appalling abuse of power. David has all the power and Bathsheba has no power at all. She can't refuse a summons from the king. And could she really refuse the king himself? It's a horrible abuse of power on David's part. And with Bathsheba becoming pregnant, David has a problem. After all, adultery is a capital offense in the law. So he thinks, well, I'll just bring her husband, Uriah, back from the war. He'll naturally want to spend time with his wife, and everybody will just assume that the baby is his. But it's not that easy. Because when David brings Uriah back... He doesn't actually want to go home. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah is a soldier, and it's wartime. So he says, how could I selfishly indulge myself? 
with the comforts of home and the arms of my wife, when all of my buddies are out roughing it in the field and enduring the hard conditions of war. That wouldn't be right. I wouldn't feel good about doing that. And I think the writer wants us to notice the contrast between Uriah and David. Here's a Hittite, a Gentile, who's showing hesed to his king and to his fellow soldiers by denying himself. When David, the king, indulged his passions and took the wife of one of his soldiers. So Uriah doesn't want to go home. But David doesn't give up. He keeps Uriah around for a couple of days. And he even gets him drunk, hoping that Uriah will eventually change his mind and want to go down and see Bathsheba. But he doesn't. Uriah is a rock. So David sends Uriah back to the war with a letter to Joab to put Uriah in the fiercest fighting and then gradually withdraw from him so that he'll be killed in battle. And Uriah carries his own death warrant with him back to the war. It's a convenient way for David to solve his problem. Once dead, Uriah will never be able to protest that the baby isn't his. But I think more is going on than David just finding a convenient solution to his problem. Uriah was with David for three days, at least three days, maybe four days. And the whole time, David is trying to steer Uriah to home and to Bathsheba, and he won't do it. And I think over that time, David gradually began to hate Uriah. He began to hate him for his integrity, and his integrity became a stench to David. Maybe at first it was kind of annoying because Uriah's not going when David thinks, why aren't you going home? But by the end, I think it infuriated David. Why else would David have had Uriah killed? You know, in the end, it would have been David's word against Uriah's word. David's a very popular king. He's the favorite son. I mean, is anybody really going to believe a Hittite, a Gentile, over David the king? Probably not. He could have weathered the political storm, okay? But I think Uriah's steadfastness in not going home heaped burning coals on David's head. In other words, I think David was scandalized by Uriah the Hittite and by his refusal to indulge his own passions when his fellow soldiers could not. And so, through the sword of the Ammonites, David has Uriah put to death. And Joab sends the report back to David that Uriah is dead. And David replies in verse 25, David said to the messengers, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. In other words, it's war. You win some, you lose some. Don't worry about it, Joab. That stuff's bound to happen. David says, do not let this matter displease you. But a better translation is, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Because David doesn't see it as evil in his eyes. He sees it as good because it benefits him. But we know by now that David's sight has been severely compromised, and he doesn't see things accurately. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. The poor woman hadn't been mentioned since verse 5, quite some time, when she told David that she was pregnant. 
But now David adds a beautiful woman to his collection of wives and concubines. He gets to add another son. The threat's averted. Really, it's the perfect crime that's made possible by David's position and power. That's how David sees it. It's not evil in his eyes. But there is another who also sees. Verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And again, a better translation would be, but the thing was evil in the eyes of God. The thing was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it parallels what David said to Joab. Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Because it wasn't evil in David's eyes. But God's eyes outsee all of our eyes. God's eyes outsee all of our excuses and our spin over our sins. And what God sees in David's actions is just evil. And there's going to have to be a reckoning. Now in the previous chapters, there's a repeated verb of send. David does a lot of sending. He sends messengers to get Mephibosheth. He sends messengers to Hunan the Ammonite. He sends Joab to fight the Ammonites. He sends messengers to bring Bathsheba to him. He sends for Uriah. He sends Uriah back. He sends a messenger to Joab. And he sends for Bathsheba to come and become his wife. Excuse me, his wife. He's the king. That's what he does. He sends and people do his bidding. Isn't that how power works? Well, in the next part of this story, God sends Nathan the prophet to David. Chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You know, Nathan had come to David before in chapter 7 with a good word about God going to build David a house and how he would have a forever throne. But now he tells David a story, and he tells it like a case that's in need of a ruling from David. And we can picture the story, this owner, this poor man nuzzling with this little lamb, giving presents to the little lamb, the lamb sitting at the table with the family, giving it food, laughing at the lamb's antics, just like any one of us would do with our pets. And people in that day did not have pets like we have pets. So we can imagine this kind of thing, a happy family, until one day strong men come in and they grab the lamb and they pull the lamb out of the house and the lamb is bleeding and the kids are screaming and then the lamb is gone and then it turns up as supper for this guest who had no idea what this lamb meant to that family and probably wouldn't even care. It's just another meal to him. Does it make you angry? It's supposed to make you angry and it makes David angry. And thankfully, it makes David angry. He, he hasn't completely lost his moral compass at this point. 
He knows the law. Exodus 22.1 says that theft of a lamb should be repaid fourfold. And that's what David says should happen. This is the hinge where the whole story turns. And David has no idea what's coming next. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Notice the repetition of the word sword. David had conquered all the swords of his enemies. He had told Joab, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes, for the sword devours now one and now another. And remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Abner had called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? But now, because he used an Ammonite sword to kill Uriah, the sword will not depart from David's house. Because of what David did, there's going to be all kinds of violence in David's family, and he will lose four sons before he dies. Now, Nathan has to speak God's words, but David is the king. He could use his power to silence Nathan for good, but he doesn't. Because the problem that David has can't be solved by pure power, only by grace. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. David is convicted. He doesn't try to excuse or explain or cover up. He confesses his sin and there is forgiveness for him. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. God will not hold David's sin against him. There will be consequences, but the consequences don't negate God's forgiveness. One of the consequences is that this child will die. God afflicts the baby and the baby becomes sick. So what does David do? You know, he could give up. He could say, well, this is what God said was going to happen. It's my sin. It's my fault. God said the baby's going to die. And I guess I just have to accept that. But instead, David fasts and he prays and he weeps and he lays on the ground seeking God for the life of the child. Why does he do that? Well, later, after the child does die, David says, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. David knows what God had said. But instead of thinking about himself and what he did, he remembers who God is. He remembers the character of God. God had taken David from a nobody and made him king and promised to build him a house with a throne that would last forever. Perhaps such a gracious God will take pity and let the child live. Maybe God will change his mind. 
David knows his sin, but he also has very strong convictions about the character of God and who God is. And that leads him to pray in faith. But the child does die. And now watch what David does in response. Verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. David washes and anoints himself and goes into the house of the Lord and he worships. Now, if he were us, he might think, well, God forgave me and he let me live. But surely God doesn't want to have anything to actually do with me. Surely God does not want me around. Surely God does not want me in his house. But no, David goes right into the house of the Lord and he worships like he has every right to be there because he does, because the forgiveness was total. While the child is struggling for life, David, in a sense, dies, fasting, weeping, praying, laying on the ground. But when the child dies, David is resurrected, washed, anointed, eating and drinking and worshiping. It's mind blowing. And there's more. Verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and she called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. I think this is one of the most stunning verses in the whole Bible. Not only is God going to keep his promise to David to build his house and give him a forever throne, But he does it through the same relationship that was adulterous and that led to Uriah's murder. The same relationship. And I think this is an incredible note of hope. For David and for Bathsheba, life begins again. After Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. Life began again for Adam and Eve. And life begins again here. Just when everything looked dead, God brings life to David and to Bathsheba. And I picture a wildfire that just scorches everything until it's just black and brown and dead. But before too long, a little shoot, a green shoot, pops out of the ground and life begins again. Can you believe that? May we read what David did and we think there is no comeback from that or there should be no comeback from that. David should be permanently humiliated. He should be disqualified for good. He should be canceled. It's scandalous. But there's David after the baby dies, going into the house of God and worshiping and eating and drinking as if all is normal. And there's David in marital union with Bathsheba, who he had taken. And in that, God begins to fulfill his covenant promise to David. This is not normal. This is not how we would do things. But that's because our God is not like any other God that you've ever heard of or could imagine. His love and grace scandalizes us. As chapter 12 ends, David leaves home and he fights the Ammonites because there's still a war going on. And he takes a crown belonging to an Ammonite king and he puts it on his head. David had sinned and there will be consequences. But the main thing as chapter 12 ends is that David is back. He's fighting, he's conquering, he's the king of all kings. He puts other kings' crowns on his head. And war with the Ammonites is over. 
He's fully forgiven. He's fully restored. And he's fully living in the covenant that God made with him and has not taken back. Here are a few ways that I think that tonight's text can challenge us. David lived in the immeasurable grace of God. Grace to forgive and grace to empower and sustain. These verses should shake us and force us to reckon with God's unbelievable mercy and grace. They force us to ask if our view of God's mercy and grace is too small. They force us to ask if we see our sin as greater than God's forgiveness. And they force us to ask if we really believe that God can bring life out of death. And not just for other people, but for us. Paul says in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus, the King. Not the suffering that we experience in life and not even our own sin. Because we are in Christ. We live in a vast country of grace. A vast open country of grace. But if we're always thinking that, yeah, God's forgiven us, but he must still be mad a little bit. If we think that, we're just going to come cringing to God. And we're just going to stay in this one little cramped space in this vast country of grace. And if that's you, I want you to hold two images in your mind tonight as we come to the table. The first image, I want you to picture Mephibosheth cringing in fear before David, thinking that he's probably going to die, unsure what's going to happen to him. But in the second picture, I want you to picture Mephibosheth. I I knew I was going to do it one time. It came right at the end. Picture Mephibosheth sitting at David's table, eating the food that David himself eats. And looking around in wonder, not being able to believe his good fortune. Because it's that second picture that reveals who we really are. We don't need to cringe before our God. Because God sent his son so that we could dine at his table tonight and forever. You know, normally we read these chapters and we focus on David's sin. And we think about how David got there. And we think about how we should avoid sin. And all that's well and good. But tonight, I hope that these verses awaken you to a fuller sense of God's love and mercy and grace. His incomprehensible grace, the kind that can't be explained and certainly can't be earned. It can only be received. Let's be scandalized by God's love and grace together. Amen. Amen.